With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 156. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. I hope we're not sounding uh, too croaky at this ungodly hour of the morning because we are recording this show very early, quarter to eight in the morning. And there's got to be a damn good reason to get me out of my little Superman PJs and in the studio this early. Yeah, we've we've been getting a lot of Australian guests recently and uh, it's really good, but we do have to come in early because it's yeah. the other side of the world. <laughs> and this week's guest is absolutely fantastic. It's Sega Master Tim, who's uh, Tim Gadler, and he was actually a video games counsellor. Have you heard of this before? Yeah, now these are the people who used to essentially man the hotlines. Um, and if you had a problem, like beating a stage of a game or a certain bit that you couldn't get past, you would ring people like Tim and he would talk you through over the phone what you needed to do to get to the next bit of the game. Yeah, not only that, he was kind of working with Aussiesoft, who were the big Australian uh, kind of distributor for Sega. Yeah. And he'd be getting like exclusive games. He even had a pen pal at Sega America. And it's a really fascinating story about the kind of Australian console scene. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, Tim, as you'll hear in the interview that we're going to do with him in around 15 minutes, he grew up in a very small town, didn't he? And he wasn't well, actually. He spent a lot of time in hospital. And the only thing that really got him through those tough times was playing on his Sega Master System. That kind of cheered him up as a kid. And he became, you know, a bit of a proper Sega fanatic, really, didn't he? Yeah, and he then was ended even, up working with them. even writing for Megazone magazine as yeah. well, which was the uh, big Sega mag back then yeah, in so Australia. He was, he was working at Sega during the height of their golden era, really, wasn't he? You know, talking oh, yeah. about something, the Hedgehog and Alex Kidd and all that Street stuff. Street Fighter 2. So. Yeah, I mean, there's even a little story in here about when he first saw Street Fighter 2. They used to get games, like, you know, before they came out so they could learn them to be able yeah, to Yeah, and, fight. like, beaters and stuff, yeah. And all these uh, weird callers he had, some angry parents and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be a really good one this week. Tim Gadler, Sega Master Tim is his nickname, uh, talking about life as a Sega Games Counselor down under. He'll be our special guest coming up in around 15 minutes from now. If my voice holds out, I need that first coffee of the day down, I think, Ravi. <laughs> I'm about to. <laughs> right, then, before we get into uh, the news this week, apparently Nintendo fans are not too happy with their NES offerings on the Switch at the moment. And also, there may be a remake of a classic Dreamcast game. Okay. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. First of all, let's give a big up to the people who let us come in here at every hour of the day and do the Retro Hour podcast for you week in, week out. And that is the people who make a donation into the running of the show and find their place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Frank Rundholtz. Edward Sanguinetti. Sebastian Kierman. And Gary Audley, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, obviously, we say it all the time, it's a tip jar. Anything we get will go back into the running of the podcast. And it really does help us out, guys. We massively appreciate it. And if you'd like to donate, you can do it via PayPal or even cryptocurrency. If you've got some spare Bitcoin kicking around, you'll find all of that. The link's on the front page of our shiny new website at theretrohour.com. Now, let's talk about this Nintendo story. Last year, do you remember everyone was getting really excited? Back in about October, the online service on the Nintendo Switch finally launched with some NES games. And they've been churning these out at about two or three a month for the last few months. 
But it turns out, if you look at the video, that the official Nintendo YouTube channel uploaded it last week, actually, talking about their January games, they've put two NES games up there. And check out that thumbs-down to thumbs-up ratio. 14,000 thumbs-down as opposed to 6,000 thumbs-up. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the kind of idea of buying your old games again when you've already bought them for the original system, for the Wii and for the ROM, is, is strange because Nintendo used to package it as the virtual console. Yeah. And the virtual console was really good, actually. Um, it was so much on there, wasn't it? So much, but also it enabled a lot of piracy. So that's why I think they're not doing the virtual console anymore and they're releasing them as expensive individual kind of titles. Well, no, the way this works is, I mean... I've got a Switch, and the way you actually play these games on the Switch is you download, like, the NES app, as it were, and then you open it, and there are games in there. That, so, that, you know, they're essentially free to play. You go okay, in, there's, there's okay. new editions every month. Okay. But what they're doing is they're putting, like, two or three a month in there, and some of them are, like, really random games that you probably would never want to play again. Yeah. I mean, there are some of the big ones in there, Double Dragons and your Marios and that too. But people are saying you're paying for this online service, and they're hunting down all these ROM sites at the moment, but all they're doing is giving you two NES games every month. And why is it only NES games? Yeah, true, actually. You could have the GameCube, the uh, Super Famicom, you know, the N64. Yeah. Game Boy Advance, all the Game Boy games as well, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot more to Nintendo's back catalogue than just, you know, games from the early 80s, essentially. And some people have been saying that. You think of the demographic. Um, The Switch, I think, has got quite a broad demographic. You know, it's guys like us who like Nintendo games and might want to have one on the go. But also, it's a lot of young players. And, like, you know, my little nephew Harry is six years old. He's got no interest in playing, you know, games from the early 80s, I imagine. But he might want to play, I don't know, like a GameCube or a Wii game, for example. Might hold his attention more. So they're actually getting quite a bit of backlash from this, which is a bit sad, really. But if you go through all the comments in here, you know, people complaining that why are we paying for this service when you've took down all these ROM sites and all you're doing is giving us a couple of crappy NES games every month. It's pretty strange because, like, if you look at the releases on the other consoles, when they released, like, look how long the YouTube app took to come out on the Switch. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, there's no integrated voice chat, there's no party chat, there's no uh, messaging or dedicated servers, there's no cloud saving for games. So it's like, why have they got so limited features on the store if they want it to be a popular and used thing? I mean, it's only twenty twenty pounds a year for their online service. So yeah. it is a lot less than like PlayStation and Xbox, but you are still paying for that service. It's yeah, and like this, good. I remember the Wii U one was really good. Yeah, where you could like communicate with everybody, but also the Wii U YouTube app was one of the best YouTube interfaces I've kind of used. Yeah, you yeah, could control so... it on the tablet thing, yeah, you? Yeah. watch it on the screen. And there's a comment here on this video, on Nintendo's official video. Uh, a guy called Steven, he completely agrees with what you said then. He goes, Nintendo, please listen, we want a virtual console or some other way to access your classic content better than this. At the rate you're going, the Switch will be outdated and irrelevant by the time we get SNES and N64 games on there. I bought the Switch. I shouldn't have to buy another console from Nintendo to have access to your classic games I want to legally buy from you. Listen to your fan base. I I think it's also that they're trying to... Because they've they've obviously released a hardware upgraded version of the the chip that you could crack the firmware on. So maybe they're like thinking... Let's try and make sure there's absolutely no vulnerabilities in this software before it comes out. I can see they might be a bit nervous. Yeah, I kind of get that. I mean, I was looking the other day. Apparently, someone's kind of been drilling down into the code of their kind of emulator 
on the Switch a bit more. And there is stuff in there to run, um, like GameCube and N64 games, apparently. So, you know, there is elements of, like, headers in the code. So, obviously, they are planning it at some point, but I think people are getting a bit frustrated at them. They need to do a little bit more, I think, to keep people's interest. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the early 2000s, of course, one of our favourite consoles. We've done episodes about it before. The Sega Dreamcast. Oh, yeah, that was a beautiful console. Do you remember Sonic Adventure when you first saw that game? Yeah, yeah, because I first saw, um, it was Sonic World, was it, for the um, Saturn, where they had that little kind of, it it looked like Mario 64, the 3D world that you could run around. And that was what the original Sonic was going to be, like the 3D Sonic. The Sonic Extreme, I remember, that got cancelled. Yeah, they never developed that for the Saturn. And then I went into a shop, uh, a Beaties. Right. And uh, it was near the train section, actually. <laughs> I went round there and they had Sonic Adventure 2 running on a big, like, uh, display unit. Yeah. I was just like, what? Sonic's back? <laughs> like, it had been a good, you know, five, six years or something. Since that was the second one, you saw. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, I mean, it was an amazing game. And like you said, it was the first time that Sonic had really properly gone into 3D. And I remember, like, a mate of mine had one at uni. And I was kind of in my, the, the phase where I kind of got out of video games a bit. And I was into DJing and that kind of thing, really. Wasn't paying that much attention. But when I saw a new Sega console my friend had, I remember thinking, oh, you know, is there a Sonic the Hedgehog on it? So I used to love that game in the early 90s. And when I saw it, it like, it did blow my mind. Just how, not only quick the game was as well, but the fact that it was, yeah, Sonic in 3D, it's like something I'd always wanted to see. And it, and it was good because it wasn't like Wipeout where you're constantly hitting the sides. <laughs> you know, you yeah. could actually go fast through the level. But there was a couple of things I absolutely hated on that game. Why did they have Sonic speak? And why did they have yeah. him speak in an awful American accent? And the music was just awful. I know some people like it. Speed up sound. But I was like, oh, God. I didn't mind some cheesy, of the songs on there. Right. <laughs> it was very cheesy. But yeah. I I think in hindsight, it's quite nostalgic to me now when I hear the, the songs off Sonic yeah, Adventure. Yeah. Michael Jackson, Sonic 3. That's yeah. have, Not yeah. as good as the Mega Drive songs, admittedly. But actually this month, I mean, Retro Gamer magazine, which is... A magazine, I don't pick Retro Gamer up every month. But if I see it in Asda, for example, and it's got an interesting cover, mm. I will normally buy it if it's a game I'm interested in. And this month, I've actually got a cover feature all about Sonic Adventure. Oh, cool. Now, they're talking to um, Sonic Team Head, Takasha Lizuka. Hopefully I pronounced that right. And he's kind of talking about the game insofar as, you know, his experiences of developing that game and making the first high-speed 3D Sonic game. But also, there's a quite an interesting little bit in there where he kind of says that the game maybe hasn't aged as well as some other kind of 3D games or other platformers, and he'd love to remake it. Yeah, if you could stop that little annoying thing following you around and giving you tips. Or the chows. Would, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would be good. No, it'd be nice to have a remake, wouldn't it? Really uh, high-end graphics and stuff. Well, here's a quote that he says, and here he goes. It was the very first 3D game that we worked on. Looking at it now, I can see it's got rough edges, and this really makes me want to remake it again. So I think there would be a lot of support for that. I mean, looking at that quote, it kind of sounds like he's just kind of daydreaming. I don't think they're actually doing this right now at Sega. Do you remember the second one where they had Shadow as well? Yeah, yeah. And and then you could play as Shadow or Sonic and Dark versus Light. Oh, it's good. Yeah, I mean, Sonic in that era, there was a lot of games came out, but they were kind of, I think they're the most fondly remembered. I mean, I know Sonic's relationship with 3D has been a bit hit and miss. Generally more miss than it in recent well, years. Well, was it Sonic R as well? That was the other one, wasn't it? On the Saturn, that was a racing game, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Which The thing about that game is, it's not a bad game, Sonic R, but everyone always plays it as Sonic, and he's a worse character. Yeah. He's actually really hard to control. Um, but, I mean, if we do get a remake of this, what I'm hoping is, because I love Sonic Generations, that was great. 
And, you know, Sonic Mania I've loved recently mm. as well. But it would be nice to see, you know, the 3D Sonic kind of getting that kind of nostalgic repackaging done properly. You press a button and it goes to old school mode and yeah. back to new school, yeah. That'd be good. That'd be cool. And, and you know, if, if he's got the desire to do it, I imagine now there's going to be probably a lot of people talking about it like us and maybe it'll give them the inspiration to actually do it. Mentioning one thing about Sonic, have you seen this poster um, for the Sonic the, the movie, movie <laughs> yeah. with, with strange furry legs? <laughs> like, yeah. Someone's actually, because there is a Sonic movie coming out this year, isn't there? Um, and someone's used Photoshop to actually lighten it. And you can see he's actually got the face of like a, a real hedgehog just in the middle. Oh, really freaky, freaky. <laughs> Let's see what that looks like. But it could be one of these uh, video game movie flops. We never know. Uh, so th- some people are saying they probably just used a model and they haven't actually rendered all that improperly. You know, you're not meant to see it, but God, yeah. give you nightmares looking at that thing. <laughs> are you a fan of light gun games? Absolutely love them to death. And uh, I feel it's a kind of lost, lost genre nowadays. Whenever I go back to... Um, play events or any of the kind of gaming events, everybody runs the light guns. Yeah. And the queue for Point Blank is, like, huge yeah, every yeah. time. Normally Joe and Alex are mates, isn't it? Yeah. I think they played in it once for about six hours, didn't they? The yeah, they're, they're more Time Crisis and House yeah, of the Dead, but... I think, yeah. But those games were just phenomenal. And the thing about it is, you actually can't generally play these games at home anymore because they don't work with flat-screen TVs. You kind of can. There's a thing called an aim track, and an aim track is like a light gun that uses the kind of Wii sensor bar. Okay, yeah, I have seen that. I think. And then you put that on top of your unit, and it and it treats it like a mouse dragging really fast. So you don't get the accuracy. You yeah. know, it hasn't got that kind of flow, and it feels a bit off. But I had a go at my friend's house. I was pretty drunk, and it feel fine. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know what it would be like sober. <laughs> After five Jet Daniels and Coke, it felt yeah. perfect. The thing that really got people into light gun games at home back in the day was, of course, the NES Zapper, wasn't it? You know, playing Duck Hunt. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, it turns out that Hyperkin, who actually make um, this Duke controller that I've got here, oh, nice. sort of Amazon, the, uh, the recreated Xbox controller, and Hyperkin also do, like, um, kind of HD versions of old consoles as well cover them on the show before but they were at ces which of course was on a couple of weeks ago and they were demoing an nes zapper that works with hd tvs so essentially they've remade the zapper for the 21st century yeah it it, it seems really interesting um because it says an actual original duck hunt cartridge and NES can yeah. be used with it so it's not like they've released a a, a fake version but they've actually built this adapter um, to work with HDMI. So I'm hoping that it would support more games. Like maybe you might get your old Super Scope out or get your G-Con guns on it later if they start doing ones for, say, like the Dreamcast or the... Um, or the SNES or something. Or the PlayStation. Yeah. You know, you did say there that this does require the original NES hardware. And that was the thing that kind of caught my attention. I was a bit like, so essentially... I wonder how much market there is there, though. How many people have actually got their original NESs hooked up to an HDTV? Because yeah. it looks like pants. <laughs> or it might work with one of those analog NTs or, or you know, those uh, new, new-made new NESs. Well, they make them, Hyperkin, but apparently it won't work with theirs. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, which I thought was really odd. I can understand if, you know, you had a, a modern one that had an HDMI output yeah. using it on your flat screen, but if you've got to get your NES and put it into composite on an HDTV... Because I'm assuming, right, that the adapter somehow tracks the gun and then there's a link between that mm. and then that somehow goes onto the input interface and then says, I'm a zapper and yeah. kind of translates that straight away. That's so, the only way it could work, really, yeah. isn't it? Um, but if they could use that technology on later stuff, 
Imagine yeah. guys with like MAME cabinets and well, they'll be using CRTs anyway. <laughs> that, that's it, what I'm know. thinking. It's like yeah. you know, the people who are interested enough to have an original NES and want to play this, I imagine most of them have probably got CRTs anyway. Yeah, so yeah. I'm wondering how much market there is there. I think it's cool that you can play Duck Hunt, you know, the way it's meant to be played. But it does feel like if you're going to go all that way, you yeah. might just get a CRT. Well, maybe you can modify these and get a cheap version of an aim track gun or something. Because I've seen you can even get the recoil on those, but they have a separate uh, power pack and it's blooming loud. So you're yeah. sat there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get complaints from the neighbours. Yeah, yeah, what's yeah. Ravi doing next door? <laughs> uh, but I mean, Hyperkin are a great company anyway. And obviously they think there's a demand there. And it's been getting a lot of coverage. And it yeah. looks like the original one. I and mean, they've been doing lots of accessories for yeah, loads yeah. of consoles. Dreamcast wireless controllers, stuff like that. You know, I think some of them were actually, some of the Sega ones were premiered at CES as well. Yeah. They look pretty good. Um, and also they've been doing this kind of Raspberry Pi uh, DIY SNES kit as well. Oh, cool. Well, you can actually play your original SNES cartridges on a Raspberry Pi. So, what is it like a interface board? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you've got the two control um, ports on the front. Raspberry Pi goes in the back of it, and then you've got a slot. Put the cartridge in the top and play it on a little board like that. That's so, awesome. Yeah, Hyperkin are a great company. So, yeah. um, wish them all the best. You know, it'd be interesting to see who does buy this and look out for the YouTube reviews. Now, Japan is always an interesting market. It's obviously where you know, if we're talking consoles, where a lot of the games kind of originate from, and a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show, but some of their laws kind of seem a bit extreme to us in many ways, don't they? For example, now, you may have read about this, that game console modding has become illegal in Japan. And this is punishable by prison sentences and fines. You could get five years in jail for modding a console now in Japan. Yeah, they're very strict in some kind of laws in Japan. And, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one, this one is. What does modding count, though? Yeah, uh, count as in the new law then. Like what if you put a sticker on your machine? Would that be yeah, <laughs> a prisonable offence? It's quite vague from the articles I've read about it. I mean, they're essentially, I think, talking about modding software and hardware. I imagine the reason they're doing this is because I know over there they've often had a problem with copyright and kind of cloned consoles, and you know, yeah. even dating back to the nineties and that, you'd often get you know dodgy copies of Microsoft products not sold on markets and that over there. Well, well, I remember when I went to India and it was like just everywhere. It yeah. was like pirate. It was insane. But I've just found the thing that it actually describes it in the law. So it's the distribution of game save data, editors or programs, the distribution, selling, auctioning serial codes or product keys without the software maker's permission or services that offer editing hacking service of save data or modifying hacking a games console you see so even modifying forward slash hacking a games console is part of it which is uh, kind of scary like so yeah I, I think this must be done to it's for resellers really then isn't it it's to stop people selling yeah yeah it's not and... for the consumer that's hacking his own one and modifying it up it's people making like you know buying cheap serial codes, selling them on other sites, doing all of this yeah. stuff, you know. Or the guys that might sell like a PlayStation 4 hacked and then the hard disk is full of loads of games. Undermining and... the market. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, it, I guess that does seem logical. I mean, five years in jail for it is quite an extreme yeah. sentence by, by our standards, I guess. But um, they don't specify quite how far back it goes. I mean, I imagine this would even apply to like, you know, if you're modding the, the NES Classic, for example. Yeah, or even if you got your N64 and you bought a replacement case that was a different colour, would the guy doing the case get done? Would you get done for using that? And, 
yeah, w- would he also be done to the same level as someone who was selling thousands of serial codes? So, you know, it's it's hard, isn't it, to have such a wide-reaching law? Because whenever we go to events, we always see NES Classics and SNES Classics modded with like 100 games preloaded on. That yeah. would be outlawed in Japan. Or so, yeah. getting your old one and recapping it. Or what about like, <laughs> yeah, Ever- yeah. Everdrives and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, you yeah. think about that. Let's imagine Ravi going to Japan on holiday with his, uh, his modern Nintendo <laughs> Switch in his suitcase That's and end up in prison for five years. Yeah. Be careful. <laughs> right now, before we get into our interview with um, Sega Master Tim, Tim Gadler talking about life as a Sega games cancellor in Australia. Really interesting chat. Evan Amos has got a book out. Now, do you know who Evan Amos is? Evan Amos, wasn't he a famous photographer of, um, was it for Apple? Well, Evan, he's a guy, if you, everyone will know his work in the retro gaming community. If you go into Wikipedia and you Google any console. Oh, yeah, he did all the images yeah. for it. Yes, yes. Those oh, beautiful yeah. high resolution images of the consoles and the computers. Evan's a guy that took all those pictures on Wikipedia. Wicked. So, I mean, essentially, the story turned out that, you know, he was looking at Wikipedia because he's a big video games fan. And. He was going through, and all these images were like, you know, people taking them on the camera phone, and they're really bad quality. And he thought, I'm going to show these systems some love. So he did a professional photography session with them all, and open sourced and put them out there for everyone to use. So I think we've used his images before. Oh yeah, I think I'm trying to think how many YouTube thumbnails and how many things are using the images straight away. Tons of them. I even remember seeing a thing the other day where a guy was like, "Oh yeah, check out my new car." Right. And someone was like, that's the image from Wikipedia, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, does he not know that reverse Google image search yeah. is a thing? Uh, but I thought, you know, we owe, everyone in the retro gaming community owes Evan at least a little shout out, I think. Oh, for totally. All the great work he's done for the community. So we're really happy to uh, give his little book a shout out as well. Now, he's got a book out called The Games Console, A Photographic History from Atari to Xbox. So if you've ever used any of Evan's images or just looked at them, you should really give this book a buy because it looks really good as well, actually. It's essentially a tour through the evolution of video game hardware. And we've all seen his work. We know what a great photographer he is. And he essentially documents you know, all these systems starting in the early 1980s, right through until the modern day, right up to like, the, the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. And a lot of systems you probably didn't know existed and may have actually been, you know, had nice pictures taken of them for the first time, really. Well, this is really interesting because I'm looking at a couple of the pages here and he has the kind of original images that he used on Wikipedia, but he also has images, I don't know if they're 3D rendered or if he took them in a certain way, but they're like a cross-section or a kind of a pulled-out version of the console. Yeah, so you see every little component in there. So, you know... I haven't looked inside a PlayStation before. (laughs) So, no, now I can see it. There's not much. (laughs) It's quite minimal. Um, Yeah, it is is a really interesting book. And I mean, we we know that Evan's a great photographer. We've all seen his work. So if you want to see more of it, uh, the book's available now. We'll put a link in our show notes to the, uh, the Amazon page where you can buy it. Right then, should we talk about Life Down Under as a Sega game counselor? This week's special guest from Melbourne, Australia, is Tim Gadler. Bonzo. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to cross to the other side of the world to Melbourne, Australia to welcome on our special guest this week, former Sega game counsellor. Welcome to the show, Tim Gadler. An honour to be here. 
Yeah, I know this um, crossing the world thing doesn't always work too well, but you're sounding pretty good from where we are on Skype at the moment. Yeah, oh, no, no, you're right on my side too. Yeah, no, very good. <laughs> now, before we get into kind of, you know, talking about your um, time as a Sega game counsellor, which I don't think is something we've covered on this show before, and Megazone Magazine yeah. and Sega America and all these interesting yeah. stories you've got. I mean, going like, you know, right back to day one, I mean, what, how did you first get into video games and what was your kind of earliest memory? Well, um, the thing with me was even before video games, I just love games in general. So I've still got my collection of old board games like Monopoly. Uh, there was an Australian Monopoly-type game called Squatter, Dice Games and all those sorts of games. So, you know, I really like playing games. Um, and I I know it sounds a little bit sad, but um, I used to play them on my own. So I'd imagine I was another player and I'd compete against myself. Um yeah, I went from board games, then I got a Pong set. For some strange reason, I went out and got a TRS-80. I think that's one of my biggest regrets. I don't know why the hell I got it. I think I think it was just because that, that I couldn't afford uh, a Commodore 64. Yeah. So I went with that. Um, then I went with the Atari 2600, and then I ended up with a Sega Master System. And yeah, and everything went another direction after I got back. Did you uh, (laughs) play many arcades as a kid? Not really. I lived in a small country town. And so the nearest place that had a decent arcade was about 40 kilometers from me. So it's about a 30k, uh, 30 minute drive. And so the access to arcade arcade machines was very hard the, the, the first arcade machine i came across was at a local squash court um and we had uh this uh third party release of space invaders and i thought well this was amazing and then i saw better game better games come out over the years so you know you'd have your galaga and gyrus and all that so i got exposed to those but I, I, I read more about them in, in the magazines like CMVG that we used to get from you guys from the UK. Yeah. And I hear about all these great games. So, yeah, it, it wasn't that easy to access arcade machines, uh, but I drooled over them every time I saw a picture of them. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts in Australia did you grow up? Okay, so, well, I'm in Melbourne now, but I grew up in a small country town called Beechworth, which is about three hours uh, northeast from where we are now. Mm. And I grew up there, and there's like a population of about 3,500 people. I and mean, there were two main industries. It was either a, a mental asylum, great choice, <laughs> or you worked at the local prison. <laughs> it's a great industry. Yeah. So, Which so, is the best out of those, I'm trying to think. I reckon, uh, I think you got paid better money um, uh, working at the mental asylum. Right. Uh, yeah, because... It, it, Better money, and it was easier in a sense. So, uh, but but that that was not my interest. If I was looking for a career, yeah, yeah. So it's only a small town, and I had a, a group of friends, and uh, I used to catch up with them, and, and we play video games mainly around the Atari Twenty Six Hundred or or the Commodore Sixty Four. Yeah, yeah. It's just a small country town, and it's pretty much the same population now, even to this day. My mum and dad still live up there. Well, what was the balance like um, between kids in um, the later eras? So, like Sega and Nintendo, was it was it kind of fifty fifty, or was a massive dominance from no, Nintendo or this Sega? Is, 
it was it was really weird because it wasn't so much a console thing. It was a lot of people were still playing the the Amigas. More people were into Amigas and keyboard based computers. So the Amiga, the Commodore sixty four, they were the main main sorts of computers that people would would play with. Um, that the Apple two C but not really consoles. I don't know why. I think a lot of people looked at the console and thought it was uh, sort of like child's play. They looked at the um, at the Amiga as being a lot more advanced and you could do more complex things, which is a fair call. I think it was the same but, over here as well. I mean, it was, you know, consoles. I remember yeah. they didn't really get popular until probably the early 90s, you know, at my school and stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, that would be right. Yeah, so... I think I think that yeah that was just the main thing. Uh, but if you went to the larger regional centres like Albury, Wodonga, Wangaratta, there's a good Aboriginal name there. <laughs> that is a, it's a city, Wangaratta. There would have definitely been that console war there going on. Yeah, so you either Sega or Nintendo. Well, as a kid, you were um, kind of in hospital quite a bit because you had a uh, diabetes. Yeah. Um, how did the yeah. Master System kind of keep you happy? With the Master System, I loved it because of the colours, the graphics. Um, gameplay, to me, seemed a lot more fluid. So the problem that I was having with the diabetes is my blood sugar keeps would keep on going up. And no matter how much insulin I would put in to try and drop it down, it just wouldn't bring it back down. So I would always be having comas. So always in, in and out of hospital. But it gave me a good release from the boredom of just sitting there in a hospital bed and staring at four walls. Bless mum, because she would bring in this big, heavy TV, you know, which is only a 34-inch, but it's about uh, the weight of 10 gold bars <laughs> to bring that in, plus the console and, and all the games I had, yeah, just to keep me preoccupied. I mean, in regional in regional Australia, the TV's absolutely, you know... <laughs> You watched a lot of um, a lot of ads about sheep drenching, for example. You know, nice. <laughs> not very exciting for a teenager. Or sons and daughters. Uh, oh, how do you know sons and bloody oh, daughters? We used to get all that on TV over here as well, and you know, all the neighbours oh, and away sons and, and daughters yeah. and days of our lives. And uh, God, kill me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's what would break up the boredom. Just playing the games and. That's really sparked my interest in learning a lot more about the games, like where they came from, who made them, and uh, what was involved with them. Yeah. Well, what was Aussie stuffed, and uh, what was their relationship with Sega? Were they like the equivalent of, say, Mastertronics in the UK, who were yes, distributing? Yes, exactly. Yeah, they they had, they had the license to distribute, but they I don't know what Mastertronics was like in the UK, but they also had their own magazine called Megazone, which uh, us hotliners, we would also work on that as well. So we get the games, review them, put in our bit for the magazine. And Aussiesoft started off as, uh, like any other licensing company, they, they'd start off with, you know, your VIC-20 games and then uh, the Commodore 64. So they were mainly just distributing soft uh, the software and the hardware to go with it. But um, once they got a whiff of um, Sega, they got onto that and dominated the market over here. 
I mean, in terms of like mm. games that came out over there, I mean, here it was often you'd you'd read about the games in magazines that were out in America or Japan, and we might get them six months later. I mm. mean, did you get mm. did you get games later, and did you get any like kind of exclusives that only came out in Australia that that were big that maybe weren't oh, big anywhere else in the world? There weren't really big exclusives simply because nobody else in the world wants to really play them, and that's, that focuses mainly around uh, rugby. There was a rugby league game that came out. Um, on the Mega Drive. I remember um, seeing that in ROM form. With the NES, the NES had had the Australian Rules game as well. So uh, they weren't really released so much anywhere else simply because nobody would be interested in playing them because other countries couldn't really relate to it so much, which I could understand. So there weren't weren't really many exclusives. there might have been a couple in the days of the Atari 20, uh, 2600. There was a company called HES, and they released some unique um, titles of their own. Um, some of them just look like bootlegged versions of common games that we might know from Activision, like, you know, to be a weird version of Pitfall or Frostbite or, or <laughs> Riverade. Yeah, but that would be about it. Yeah, there, there wasn't too many. Yeah, but we, we were we were pretty much like you. We were we were way behind what was being released in Japan and the US. We we would have to sit and wait patiently for things to come over to us. Well, as a kid, you kind of wrote to Sega America. Um, yeah. Did you expect a response? No, not really. I wasn't really sure because I never had done such a, a thing before. I mean, you don't just send off a letter to some random company in a faraway place um, and expect any sort of reply. And if you did get a reply, maybe you just get, thanks for your support, that's about it, and it'd be a typed-out letter maybe. But I never expected I'd, I'd get a reply from somebody who was so personable and happy to help me out and give me all this information. Well, what did your letter say then? What, what were you asking them? The main thing I just wanted to say was how much of a fan I was. I mean, you've got to understand I was only about 14 years old at the time, so I just wanted to say how much of a fan and are there any games coming out from the arcade onto the Master System and that? And is there any news you can tell me? Because I just wanted to know because... Um, you guys lucky enough to have seen VG over there for the magazine. Well, it would take three months before it got over here. So we were always three months behind from the news that we would get from you. <laughs> All right. So I, I just wanted to know more and be up to date with things. And this is where Judy came in. Um, she was able to provide me information and we built – a nice pen pal friendship from it all. Yeah, you kind of started this pen pal relationship with uh, Judy mm. and she was a Sega employee as well. So what were the kind yeah. of uh, stuff you would send back and forth to each other? Any Australian in those days would have to send over something like Vegemite. You know, <laughs> try this, don't warn them, just try it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd send over stuff like that. I'd send over, um, you know, pictures of myself, my family, um I'd I'd tell them what was happening over here. I'd I'd send them little trinkets like coins from Australia. They wanted to know, uh, wanted to 
get some eucalyptus. That's 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 what she wanted. So you know, got a few leaves of uh, gum gum tree leaves and put them in the in the letter and send them off to her. So just little things I would send through to her. Uh, but what she would send to me, uh, information about what was coming out. Uh, one of the first letters she told me was Enduro Racer was coming out soon and she gave me the cheat that you could use to select any round. And she would also send me little things like, um, what was it, uh, like a TV guide of all the of all the TV shows that they would watch and all the channels that they had. So we do, we could, we would just send over little things that we could possibly send through the mail, you know, nothing large of that. Yeah. I think the world seemed a much bigger place then though, didn't it? It was absolutely huge. I don't know for, for Australians, Australians are always looking overseas because we're so isolated. We're just surrounded. We're one big Island really. Mm. So we always keep on looking overseas and we keep on wondering what's happening on in, in the rest of the world. And that's definitely what the case was back in the day. Our eyes were always drawn to seeing what was happening over there because it seemed like all the world events happened in the Northern Hemisphere. Nothing really happened down in down in Australia other than the cricket and it always being bloody hot down here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you were in this small town then and then um, you found out about the, um, the Aussie hotline. Um, mm. How did you discover that then, and what was kind of the story there? The story was is that like I get the games, you know, and play them. And then one day uh, I saw on the back of one of the backs of the um, packages it said, "Are you stuck on the game? Call up the Sega hotline." And I noticed that the number there was from uh, the number was in Sydney. So in relation to distance, it's about a ten-hour drive up the main highway to get up there. I thought, okay, well, let's give it a bell and I rang them up. And um, lo and behold, yeah, they were the real deal, you know. They they knew their stuff about about certain games and that. And I thought this was so cool. I thought I would annoy them every week and ask, how do I get a job up there? <laughs> so, oh, I'm a big fan. Oh, what do I need to do? Oh, I know a lot about games and all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's what I kept on doing. Well, after your persistence, you eventually got an interview. And um, how yes. did a box that was sent to you by your pal, pen pal kind yes, of help you out? Yes, yes. So, so one day I got a box from Judy. And I didn't know. She didn't give me any warning. She just, she just sent it through and I opened it up and there was, I opened, looked at this sheet and it was the name of a game that I never heard of. But I heard rumours of it, and then it had a walkthrough for every level, and it also had cheat codes. But it wasn't only for one game. It was for a whole tonne of games, um, games that we already had here in Australia. But about the other 70% of the information that was in there were for other games that had not been released yet in Australia. So basically, I was sitting there with an amazing amount of information that pretty much no one else had in Australia. Yeah. So when when they finally gave up to me <laughs> and said, come up from an interview, they, you know, asked me, oh, what do you think of C? Oh, yeah, I love it. And then, you know, they, yeah, you get asked the inevitable question, well, what can, well, what makes you think you'd be good for this job? What makes you different from anyone else? And, um, I still remember it to this day. I, I got this sheet of paper and I slid it across the table 
to the woman who was interviewing me. It's going, what's this? I said, I'll oh, just have a read, have a read. And this is going through, I said, where'd you get this information? We don't have this game. And then I explained the story about what Judy did, talking about how she sent it through to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, my God, but you got all this information. You know, okay, yep, yep, yep. And um, so, oh, can you give us more? I said, no, depends, depends. So anyway, drove back down. Oh, sorry, flew back down to Beechworth. Um, and sure enough, I got a, a call offering me a job and all that information helped set up the hotline for the next uh, three to six months for all the games that we didn't have. We already had all the information there to go off so we could update our data databases and be ready to go with it. So you got a job as a video games counsellor? Yes, yes. So yes. what was what was that uh, kind of day today? What did that involve then? Like describe like a typical day as a Sega games counsellor. Okay, so uh, obviously you wake up, uh, get into work, uh, you, you'd be given information of any new releases of that, just a, a brief one-on-one chat. Oh, this, these are all the calls that we're getting for a particular game. And then you'd, you'd sit there and you'd be taking all these calls there. You've got to understand there's, there's a, a slow period and a peak period. So in the morning and during the day, you wouldn't get so many calls because all the kids are basically at school, yeah. aren't they? So during that time... You'd be on the phone, but you'd also be playing games. So you'd be sort of getting yourself familiar, upskilling yourself. And then if you find out any information about a particular game, you would then upload that inf- um, You would type in that information into the database and update it to help the other teammates with any parts of the other games that they, they may not be familiar with. Okay, so you do that. And then as soon as about... Four o'clock hit, 3.30, 4 o'clock, that's when the calls really started rolling in. Kids ringing up, stuck on Sonic, I'm stuck on Alex Kidney in Miracle World, I'm stuck on Landstalker and all that. And um, and what you, you just basically help them out and, um, yeah, and, and then they'd ask other questions like, oh, you know, <laughs> like what I was doing. Are there any games coming out? Um, how do I get a job there? <laughs> so that would be a, a normal day. Um, we'd also, as I mentioned earlier on, we'd start writing up reviews for certain games that are coming out as well. You know, we'd just write out a few paragraphs, give a review, and then we send it to, uh, or not send it, we'd walk over to the editors who were literally just 10 metres away from us um, from, a, from another, in another room, and they would look through it, edit it, make it all, all nice and glossy, and then throw it out for the publishers to print out. Well, are hmm. there kind of video game counsellors all over the world then, or were they? And uh, did you have, like, a rivalry with Nintendo counsellors at all? <laughs> um, You've got to understand, like, I'm sure like you're speaking to Tom Kalinske and um, other representatives of Sega, there was that rivalry, and I was drawn into it. I thought Nintendo sucked. I, I, I couldn't say a nice thing about Nintendo, really. <laughs> Because I was drawn into the family, uh, even though I love video games in general. Um, but one of the guys, uh, Brian, that you might have seen in that video, I, I sent a link to. <laughs> there was one time that, oh, what he used to do is ring up the Nintendo uh, Nintendo Hotline and ask when Sonic was coming out on the Nintendo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, do, do those little 
things. Um, it's not that we we weren't allowed to say anything bad about Sega. We just we just knew that Sega was good. That was it. <laughs> yeah. So the rivalry was there, but yeah, we rarely we rarely played other other companies' games so much. We were just so driven by Sega because we knew it was a great company to work for and they were releasing some really great games. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. what was the culture like there then? I mean, was it mainly like a lot of young people working there? I mean, did you party much outside of work and what kind of happened? Well, this, this is the funny thing. Um, oh, it was a positive vibe. People were generally young, especially in the hotline. I mean, you've got to have – you don't want old people working there. <laughs> it's unlikely you're going to happen there. But, um, yeah, just just – uh, very uh, youthful people, people that were very, uh, you know, really good personalities, uh, very vibrant place to work at because it was just all happening at Sega, you know. When you're dominating the market, everything's going right. We were generally laid back, but we all knew that we had a job to do. So we worked hard and we played hard. Um, did we go out drinking a lot? Well, I would have liked to. <laughs> the other guy, the other guys weren't big drinkers, and to be honest, even at at that age, I wasn't. I wasn't really. I, I wasn't really that much of a big drinker until I came across some other friends outside of work. <laughs> yeah, and that's when the drinking started. But we'd sometimes go out and do um, do social events. You know, we we go up to go into the city and maybe have a few drinks or have a party, a bit of a dance, whatever it is. We'd always have a Christmas party and that would be like um, we get out on Sydney Harbour on a boat and maybe do fireworks on a New Year's Day or on Australia Day or that. Um, yeah, we're always, we're always doing things outside of work to say, yeah. It's probably for the best that you didn't go out heavy drinking. I imagine playing Sonic the Hedgehog at like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning with a hangover probably wouldn't have been the easiest thing um, to do. Oh, I did it once. <laughs> oh, talk about not wanting to be there, mate. Oh, it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And I, and I think, I, I think I learned early from that, from that time that not to drink heavily before you go into work because it was, you're just a potato, really. <laughs> well, which game would you get the most phone calls about then? Well, it wasn't Sonic. It wasn't Sonic. It was uh, Alex Kidd in Miracle World. Oh. Um, I can't really. I don't know whether it was whether this happened in the UK, but in Australia, when they brought out the second model, the, the Sega Master Two, yeah, Master System Two, they inbuilt the game into the hardware of the unit. Yeah. So therefore, people play the game and they always call up about one bloody room and you get this call and the call starts off with, look, I'm stuck in a room. Okay, you got a pen and paper ready? All right. <laughs> but do you want to know? I know, you're playing Alex Kidd in Miracle Well, Okay, just get your pen ready. <laughs> and so we would tell them the sequence. That they had to walk over certain... Um, symbols on the ground for them to complete the game. Okay, so that would be the most common call, the most common game we would get calls for. And then would come Sonic, okay, uh, because uh, it was uh, it was then intru- uh, part of the Sega Mega Drive. It came with the Sega Mega Drive that we've got a lot of calls of, and then just simply the popularity of the game, you know, would create, the uh, large amount of calls, yeah. But um, yeah, Alex Kidd in Miracle World, and uh, me and the other 
Sega Masters still have nightmares. Nightmares about those calls. <laughs> well, it was the same over here. We, we had, yeah, the Master System 2 had it built in here. And I remember a friend of yeah. mine, he actually got one for Christmas and his mum didn't buy him any more games. So literally that's the only game that he played for about like six months oh, till his really? birthday, yeah. God, that would have been boring. <laughs> <laughs> it was pro- it probably worked out well for him because you always get up to that room not knowing what to do and be stuck there and have to finish the game. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get any yeah. uh, strange calls any angry parents or anything like that uh any angry parents um yes yes there was a particular uh a particular cover that was released for megazone magazine and it was promoting aladdin and we all know about aladdin you know great graphics great animation it's a disney game and all that but on the cover you have the genie and you have the princess and um or he wasn't a prince but whatever he was and um the monkey and they're all and and they're sitting on a flying carpet to say and it looks all innocent it looks great in that until you see the direction of everyone's eyes everybody every male male character within that picture was staring at the princess's breasts <laughs> so everywhere with this cheeky grin on their face like oh get a load of that and so the calls came in how do you do you know there's children reading this magazine yeah and look when i first looked at the magazine i didn't think anything of it it's like oh great cover that's great turned over to the next page but yes yes we got we got angry customers i also got i was talking about this one story where where a customer rang rang me up Okay, well, Sega Hotline, how can I help you? He goes, can't play open it. So, sorry, why can't, you, why can't you open it? Can't get me Mega Drive out of the box. What? Sorry? <laughs> can't get the bloody Mega Drive out of the box. Sorry, hang on, one, one sec. And so, yeah, seriously, he, he said he could not get the Mega Drive out of the box. And I said, well, just get some um, scissors. He goes, oh, no, 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 I don't want to ruin a box. I don't want to ruin it. I just, I just want to get the game out nice, uh, the console out nice and easily. I said, uh, "Well, um, you're going to have to tear it open." And he got so angry, he just swore at me and hung up on me. So. <laughs> I love the way he thought you could solve that over the phone as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How to open a Mega Drive? <laughs> just, yeah, but back then they used to use this. Um, uh, you probably remember very. Uh, heavy industrial strength glue mm. to seal the boxes with. Um, no, nothing like the boxes get nowadays where they're all, you know, there's no glue at all. It's just, you know, very strong boxes that, you know, got good origami skills, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the glue was uh, pretty strong back then, but uh, I think the bloke was being a bit precious about the box. <laughs> well, yeah. how expensive was it to call the hotline then? Well, it was free. It was free. So um, it was was free. So, um, okay. So uh, free in a sense that if you lived in Sydney, it was a free. uh, It was a local call, and and that's the the telephone company charging you. But if you lived out outside of Sydney, then it would become a trunk call, or what we call STD. Yes, I know. STD call, yeah. So if you're calling interstate or outside of city, then you start getting charged toll rates and you get charged on a per minute basis. But it wasn't 
it wasn't Seagate charging people. It was the telephone company charging people. So that's what it would cost. But as time went by, they the first thing that they introduced is that they they thought, oh, let's charge uh, the kids a membership to a club, okay, the, the, the Sega Club or the New Order, as they'd like to call it. And uh, I think... I think it was like $15 that you paid and you got a special medal and you got a, um, a pin number on the back of that. So you had to quote your pin number to call up about that. Um, so if you didn't have that pin number, we couldn't help them. But to be quite frank, I helped everyone anyway because I thought, you know, they've, they've already spent, you know, lots of money to buy the game. Yeah. Why should they spend any more? Um, and then later on when the hotline got sold off, to a telemarketing company, they started charging a dollar a minute, um, and I had left by that by that point, and um, I still get the irrits about it sometimes too. <laughs> but they started charging people because they, they replaced all the, they replaced all the staff. They got rid of everyone originally from the hotline and brought in a whole bunch of newbies that oh yeah they like video games but they weren't passionate about Sega. Uh, one of the things was that they weren't allowed to play the games. And, I mean, that's just stupid. I mean, you've got to be able to play the games because when a kid's telling you, oh, look, I'm stuck on Sonic and there's this red block, well, you have to play the game to know what they're talking about. You don't just keep on reading things off a screen. Um, yeah, you've got to know. You've got to have that experience yourself. So if they're doing that and then going ahead and charging a dollar a minute – then I, I, I just thought that's just highway robbery. And then people are just going to start giving up on Sega. And basically they were anyway because the PlayStation was um, had just hit the market. Um, so their days were numbered for Sega. Well, when you were working on the hotline, did you ever get to look at like new upcoming games or beta versions? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And the most memorable one I, uh, I always remember was uh, we got this little black box and we opened it up and there were DRAM chips in it, so little ROM chips, and it said on there, Street Fighter 2. <laughs> this is about, oh, I think it was about six months before the game had been released on the market anywhere in the world. And so what you had to do was that you got the chips and you put them in like this uh, mini motherboard that you plonked into the top of the Mega Drive. And we just spent the whole day playing this game. We were sent over a special control pad for the game, obviously, because you needed the six button. And, yeah, we were just playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it. And I don't think any calls were taken that day. I don't think any work was done that day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we would always, we'd always get um, the raw versions of the games before they were released. Not every game, but... Some of the more popular titles, like Echo the Dolphin, for example, Rocket Knight Adventures. Well, I remember that rugby league game. It wasn't really that popular, but we got to see it anyway. Yeah, so we, we got to um, see these games, and it all that helped us update the database and also do reviews for our magazine. All right? So we'd be able to take screenshots and do a write-up for it. Yeah, yeah, but we saw them all the time. 
Um, it's a shame I didn't take any of those ROMs and put them in my pocket before I left. <laughs> <laughs> How much would they be worth now? Oh, a fair oh, bit, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was the process behind like writing a walkthrough? Would you get like loads of takeaway and just sit there and play the whole game? Yeah, oh, I I used to take the games home, so I'd sit at home. Because I did, for me, I don't like too many distractions around me. Um, so I take the game home, I write it down, give my opinion. To be honest, I wasn't the best writer simply because because of all my health problems. I didn't get to finish me high school. So they left the more popular titles with the other guys. Um, but with me, I've got the, the less popular titles, which is fair enough. Um, and, and my problem is is that I'm a little bit too honest. <laughs> right. So I did a review of and, – and this is quite ironic because now we're in this year. I did the review for Outrun 2019. And originally my review was the game is no good. It's sluggish. It's nothing like the other – outrun games out there and basically they had to reword it all to make it sound like it wasn't a rubbish game it's a game basically not for everyone (laughs) so i I did i didn't have the 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 skills or the art uh, art to use my words the way i wanted to i just didn't have the art to it and we still haven't got rocket boosted cars even though it's 2019 now no, 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 no. Um, a little, little bit disappointed about the rocket booster cars. Yeah, <laughs> at least they got the right one thing right, and that the cars were still on the ground and not flying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was twenty fifteen, wasn't it? Yeah, twenty fifteen, we had the flying cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't a good game because the, the the funny thing is, is that even though your speedometer was saying that you were going about five six hundred miles per hour, it just looked like you were playing a normal racing game yeah. that wasn't really that fast at all. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, kind of proving what a phenomenon Sega was then. I mean, you, you actually got some celebrities coming to the offices too. Who came in? Okay, okay. So, we had Dieter Brummer. So, we, we mainly had the Home and Away stars that came in. Um, so, we had Dieter Brummer, Melissa George, and uh, Rebecca Elmaloglu. They're the ones that I most remember. But we also had a sponsorship with the Sydney Kings, which is a basketball team. Um, and basketball in, in Australia was really big in the 90s. It, it was going through this boom. Um, it died off, but it's coming back now again, which is great. But, yeah, we used to um, have basketballers come in, and we used to go to their games, and one of the guys would dress up as Sonic the Hedgehog uh, with a few of the guys around him promoting you know the brand and the company, and our logo was on was on the um, the court as well. Uh, we had a we had a large sponsorship deal with the uh, with the Sydney Kings. Yeah, yeah. So they, they they were the sorts of celebrities, and there were some other TV celebrities that would come in. That you know, there's no point in mentioning their names because you wouldn't know them. <laughs> but yeah, they come in, and and that would help um, fill up a couple of pages in our magazine as well. Well, I imagine the Christmas period or just after it must have been mental. I mean, was that kind of a really busy time on the hotline? Oh, a lot of years lost doing that. <laughs> um, it, it was so busy um, because being on Christmas Day, they weren't only just calls about you know, how to get through a game or that. You, you get general inquiries like, how do I set this up? 
the thing's not working. There's a crack in one of the cartridges and all that. And so what would normally we'd normally have uh, a repair line, they would be on holiday. So we would have to take them all in and, and leave notes if, if the problems were serious enough. So it was just a crazy time. We got paid triple pay per hour, but, oh, mate, it was so busy. <laughs> call after call after call after call. It would just never stop. And, and I guess, I mean, for me, for me, it was probably the one one gripe I had about the job because it was easy enough for all the other guys there living in Sydney. But because I was from um, Victoria down down south, it wasn't easy for me to just say, "All oh, right, I've finished work. I can go see my family." I couldn't do it. I had to spend Christmas basically on my own up in Sydney for a few years. Well, contributing for stuff like Megazone magazine must have been fun. Mm. Um, they did some pretty odd articles as well, didn't they back then? Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, not very appropriate, yeah. maybe. You had a license to do anything you wanted wanted to do. There was no real sense of censorship, really. So one one of the most controversial topics that they had in one of the early editions of of Megazone was um, the future of sex in video games, and they're showing a guy there with his ridiculous VR headset with his phallic thing on the end of his you know what and this is a magazine that kids were reading but strangely enough we didn't get any real complaints about it at all it was just free for all um there were there was another uh, situation where we had some competition and as a joke one of the editors said um and if you if you don't send in your entry, we're going to murder this koala. And he's got a koala, you know, a stuffed koala with a gun to its head. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, you got to understand, it was just a free-for-all. There was no such thing as censorship. And, and, and this is why once Mortal Kombat came out, that's where things changed and serious conversations had to be had. Um, it was even, like, there was even... Um, on a documentary, be on a current affair shows and and things like that about the seriousness of the situation. So yeah, something had to be done soon about it. So yeah, yeah, oh, they they did some pretty um, weird and controversial things, I must say. But it sort of it sort of reflected on the types of people that they had there as the editors. I'm not saying that they're bad people, but it was within their character to be a little bit risque to say. And I guess that kind of fit into like Sega's kind of image at the time too. I mean, they were seen as a bit rebellious against Nintendo and, you know, a bit edgy. Yes. Well, you know, we were were more mature to say. If we were mature, we were more like teenagers. We weren't little kiddies of that, you know, playing with Mario. We were teenagers discovering ourselves, you know, so... Yeah, that, that that's pretty much it. We were sort of like Bart Simpsons, I would think. Yeah, we were the Bart Simpson of video game consoles <laughs> at the time. Yeah, you know, being yeah. such a such a big Sega fan, and then obviously seeing Sega kind of lose their way a little bit. I mean, what did you kind of think mm. when stuff like the the thirty two X and the Saturn kind of came around? I mean, did you see them kind oh. of losing the way, or, or or were you a fan? Or no, not 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 really. I think the thirty two X is a great device. Mm-hmm. I know it looked a little bit ridiculous when you had the Sega CD and, 
you had the 32X on top and the Mega Drive in the middle, and it was just looking like this ridiculous pancake of technology. So <laughs> stack on, stacked on, stacked on, stacked. So I didn't really see it. So I was happy about the 32X. I got to see the Saturn when it came out. I didn't think too much about it, but at the of all the of all the units that they brought out, I just I just didn't really like the the Sega CD. I I liked it more as an audio player more than playing games because you know you you see that uh, game the NXS game that came out on it and it's just boring as it's, it's not actually a, a reflection of NXS at all. You mm. know, um, yeah, so they were really boring games, but. I guess someone had to do it because CD technology was on the horizon and it was becoming the next big thing. So I guess they had to bring that out at some stage. Yeah, But I didn't really see the demise coming until I saw the PlayStation come out. And then I started asking myself, well, what's Sega going to do? And... You know, we, they just seem to be making the wrong decisions time and time again with the Saturn. Um, yeah, so a little unfortunate, but, you know, you can't be king of the hill all the time. That's what I believe. So, yeah, but it, that, that, that was out of, that's out of our control. That And, you know, your conversations with uh, Al Nielsen and, and Tom Kalinske, you know, they weren't, decisions made by them it was all from cedar of japan and them just being difficult yeah at the end of the day well i hear you still continue a bit of gaming by doing kind of um online arcade games with aussies yes i do um so there's this little um a little competition that was set up here um called aussie arcade um but it's, it's actually open to the whole world and what we do is that People nominate eight games before each season, and each season lasts eight weeks. So we nominate eight games, and then they're randomly drawn out of a hat. And then everyone's got to play that game for 10 days and try and get their highest score. And based on wherever you end up on that ladder, ladder you get so many points. So if you come first, you get 100 points. You come second, get 99, and so on and so on and so on. So I've been doing that for a, for a few years and, and it's quite fun, you know, because I can do this in my own spare time um, to play the games. And it helps me learn about some arcade games that I've never heard of before. Um, so I've got my big main cabinet at home and sort of play out the game and have a crack at it and see how I go. But I'm just in total awe and respect with some people that can just play for hours and hours on one particular game and, and here I am and I'm lucky the last 10 minutes you know so <laughs> well, I think having MAME as well it's like you get so many games in like I'll move on to the next one now I mean you know as a kid that would have been your yeah. dream but now it's like yeah, it doesn't hold your attention for more than 10 minutes yeah well see that, that, for me for me playing arcade or MAME games for me is probably the perfect thing for a, for a bloke of my age being 46 I'm not saying I've got children. No, I've got a sausage dog. I've got a fur baby, all right? <laughs> but, you know, you've got work, you get home, you're absolutely stuffed. And so you just want a game that you can go in there, shoot, get killed, die, and then move on, you know, just to release, you know, whatever need I have to play video games. 
but I do find recently, though, that I've been playing a little bit more of my consoles um, and not the new ones, not the PlayStation 3s or 4s, the, you know, the ones from the 90s and that. And, um, and I go, oh, yeah, I remember playing this. Oh, yeah, this is good. So I like spending a little bit more time um, and discovering my childhood in a sense again, <laughs> you know, with the, with the consoles again. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, I'm a casual gamer. I'm more of a collector these days. And I, I, I keep myself in tune with what's happening with retro gaming as well. Um, just see what everybody's got. I, I, I joined a, a club that we all meet up once a month on the east side of, of Melbourne and people bring in their consoles and that. And I get to learn more about the consoles even more from, from the other companies and that. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, right into um, – I'm into my gaming, but not as much as I see some of these people playing Fortnite or that. Um, <laughs> well, we, we look going to shows and stuff as well. I mean, it feels like you're 12 years old again sometimes when you're there and you see all the machines around and everything, doesn't it? You get all wide-eyed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do get wide-eyed. Um, I, get, I, I actually get more wide-eyed when I talk to people about what I used to do and then they go, oh, my God, I probably rang you up when I was a kid, you know, and talking <laughs> to these 30-somethings and they're the Aussies and they're, Oh my God! Oh, you, you, you're all that person. I've, I've, I've always wondered if I'd ever run into a person <laughs> that did that job, and there you are. So, um, and and I, I get a bit, my heart warms when I hear those sorts of things because, you know, that they were really good times and they bring up great memories for people that used to call up the hotline and used to play the, um, the consoles back in the day. You know, so. That's where I get my most enjoyment. <laughs> well, Tim, it's been so good getting your memories of like the golden age of Sega and also hearing about what it was like in Australia. So uh, thank yeah. you thank you for being our guest this week. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for having me on too. And um, keep up the great work. You're doing a smashing job over on the other side of the world. 